What's that? Well, no, I, I understand that. that. Now, that's a whole different gamble. That's a whole different gamble you got to decide you're going to go with or not.
question is, I gotta watch it. That's in trouble. All right, gang, good to see everybody here. Everybody is the remnant. Y'all weathering this well. God bless you. Um, uh, tonight we're going to do a little bit different. Um, uh, Brother Taylor will not be actually participating up here, um, but he may be throwing things from uh, the cheap seats out there at us. But he, he's, he's doing the funeral tomorrow, and that's, that's taking a lot of stuff, getting, getting that together and everything. And so um, and, and instead it'll be my, myself and, and Weston and uh, Chaz over here with the honor of being able to sit up here and answer some of the questions that have been sent in or that we have or that uh, of any of those questions um, that you have. Well, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for men of God, great lights in the church um, uh, that we benefit through the years. I think as one man says, read the old books. Um, there's, a reason, there's a reason there are the old books. And um, uh, so in this one's generations before us, and it says, Herman uh, uh, Bavik is uh, telling us things we need to know as your servant. And so we do ask that you would bless us this, this evening and be with us in this hour as we uh, uh, look at some of these things and we discuss uh, some of these things together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, we, we have three chapters we're looking at tonight, and, and, and one of them is uh, Sin and Death. Uh, one is on the, um, uh, the Covenant of Grace. And then the other is on the mediator, uh, really the mediator of that covenant. Um, uh, something Bavik has shared earlier in some of his, his lessons is he says, he makes the point that um, the fall of man is, is very soon after creation. It comes down to how you understand the seven days and 24 hours. Um, but both the fall of man and, according to him, and there's differences within the kingdom on these things, but and the fall of the angels happened very quickly um, after the creation of all things. Um, and when he makes the point that um, God created all things in, in Genesis 131 and everything was very good, the creation of all things that were very good included heaven. It included the angels. It included all things, indeed. And somewhere after that sixth day, um, there was a fall um, among the, uh, the angels. And, um, and he's talked about that before. We discussed that a little bit in, in past, uh, past months. But um, that had happened. And it affected a good number of them. And then, um, there, of course, then comes our fall. And, and in both cases, that the heart of it um, is, the, uh, is pride. And even uh, he thinks that somewhere maybe in Timothy where Paul is writing about laying hands on a man too early um, because he's not yet proven. Um, he can fall into the condemnation of the devil, which was, he indicates is pride. And so that's maybe what uh, Paul is uh, referring to here. And so anyway, um, but nonetheless, man, as we know, has his transgression um, through the serpent, through Eve, the woman, and of course it brings everything down. Satan is um, indeed an adversary and accuser, um, and, and in some way he makes use of the serpent, and there's all kinds of um, speculations on what the snake looked like uh, before he was told, you're going to be on your belly. I don't know, you know, what that looks like. I, I've seen a creature in um, Monsters, Inc. that may look a little bit like it, but I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, but nonetheless, he sowed doubt, and uh, he kind of broke it down, and, he's, and he really thinks the process of the sin, our sins kind of go in this, focus, in this direction. Um, the progress of sin is that you darken the understanding. They don't understand the things of God. Um, then you create this excitement in the imagination. The imagination starts moving around at different possibilities, and soon it stimulates the desire of the heart, 
And so you go, ah, I, I want that. If you feed on that for a while, and I think we can all see a lot of things we've been through in our lives kind of follow this, and, fold, and then finally it culminates in the act of, in, in the, act of the will. Um, and, he, and he makes the point that Adam sin, um, he, he said there's no modifying circumstances. That we, look, we, we all know man sins, he's not accountable to that, but um, we also speak of people who have had hard lives, bad things have happened to them. All the, he says Adam has none of those excuses. Everything's clean for him. He, he, he wasn't beat when he was a kid. He didn't have a bad father. He, went, he didn't have a simple nature. All the things we, um, you know, we would kind of look and say, this is what kind of happened. You know, these things contribute to our, our terrible misery and our sins. Um, he didn't have any of that kind of thing. Um, he, he, he had everything going for him, and he threw it away, and he threw it away. And so our, our brother then asked, you know, then, you know, how come, you know, we have evil in the world? And, and um, and really sin, evil, kind of, he kind of puts together. Uh, and, he, and he goes through some things that are, they kind of are similar, but how people have tried to um, um, interpret things either through different kinds of religions, even sometimes within the supposed Christian faith, and certainly um, in, with the advent of uh, um, psychology and, and science. You know, one idea is that man is good, his heart is uncorrupted, the culprit is our environment. And if you just fix the environment, if you just, and you, we can see it in all kinds of things, give more money, give people more time, give people more, whatever it is, they won't do the things, whatever that is by that definition of sin. Um, and, and he just says you have to fix the circumstances. Uh, another possibility is that, is, is that we've, and we've again heard a lot of these things, it's just the, what he calls the sensuous nature of man. Point being, we were animals, we're moving into something better, all the things that we call our mortal problems, and we would now use the word sin, but they probably wouldn't, would, um, uh, would not, they're just uh, vestigial um, um, influences, the remnants of the old world. If you have watched the uh, various Star Trek things, uh, particularly popular on the, the one that's called the, the Next Generation, are always talking about how we used to do all these terrible things, but we've enlightened ourselves through the ages, and we're going to get we're getting better, um, and that's kind of thing. Um, the, then there's just a pure sort of a dualism. There's spirit, there's matter, there's light, there's darkness, there's body man, and mind, and they kind of fight with each other. And he'll use a lot of the languages we even used some this past weekend. The flesh versus the spirit. But his idea of flesh is the, just the animal body, not the fallen human nature. That includes the body and the mind and everything. Uh, and, and so it's a little, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different. But he would use that. And then he also says some people, as you see, I think, in some of our stuff, there's just a blind force out there. Use the force well, dark side, light side, they kind of run together. He says there's a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, but the ultimate conclusion he says is always interesting is somewhere along the line the creator of the universe the center of the universe is the bad guy and, and rather than man and the bible obviously is all about changing it justifies god and who he is and it condemns man but in the scriptures sin and evil is alien to god's creation um, it's called things like transgressions disobedience unrighteousness ungodliness enmity against god um, evil and sin for for the christian is post-creation. Everything is made, everything is made good, there's no sin. We can't even imagine what that would look like, um, but nonetheless, that's what it is. And he says, um, it, it, everything, um, sin is sort of something, it's a defect that gets introduced into the creation. And that's all talk of one day there'll be a new creation, there's also not going to be any of the things that we consider um, associated with sin or evil. 
Um, and in this way, thus weapons of righteousness or um, uh, um, uh, instruments of righteousness then all get twisted into weapons or instruments of unrighteousness. Sin is alien to the world. It gets introduced into the world um, by man. And it gets introduced to man by uh, the, um, Satan's temptation. He does make the point that that first sin is different than all the rest. Um, and we're going to look at a few scriptures here in just a minute, but he does want us to know that it does not stand alone. Um, it changed everything. Adam sinned, and, and we can see it, and, and, and I think we see patterns of it even in our lives, but it, it changed the relationship with creation, his wife, the, um, uh, his calling, the, 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 the earth itself will, you know, brings forth uh, um, uh, thorns, and um, he also, um, but above all, between him and God. And so everything starts separating. Everything starts dissolving. Everything starts falling apart. That is what death is. Um, and, very, and we know the stories well enough. The stories immediately move into Cain and Abel. And then after Cain and Abel, you, you just kind of move towards the flood. And, uh, you know, just, just that definition. Every imagination of man's heart was evil continually. And he just kind of piles those words up. Every continually... Um, um, evil is just always there. It's, it's, it's evil continually. And so it's just, it's just pretty bad. And then the post-flood, um, you know, uh, we, we, we know the story well enough. Noah gets through, but what gets through also is the sinful nature. That is not cleaned up. So it's almost like, okay, we're starting again. Another, you know, out, out, of, the flood, out of the waters, there's going to come light and all kinds of things. Didn't work that way because also Noah got through. The most blameless man in the world gets through with his family and then we all know how fast it goes to pot. Um, so anyway, and then he talks some also just how some of these things have fired. These same kind of principles have filled themselves in in some of the, um, the uh, historical unorthodox groups or even heretical groups within the church. He mentions Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and all the issues. The same idea, though, man is a clean slate. He's not born sinful. He, he just, um, his will is not ultimately affected. He doesn't have to sin. And just a bunch of bad things that don't really make sense with, according to the scripture. Um, but he does want, he spent a lot of time talking about the, the unity, um, the, sort of the organic unity of the human race. And he says, you can see it in the language he uses, very similar to what we're used to using with the church. The point is, we are all connected with each other. All humanity is connected in some way. And he says that we have one body, we have many members. We, we think of that as a church, but he says that also deals with um, uh, the, the, uh, just humanity itself. With one tree, many branches, one kingdom, many um, citizens. There's just great organic solidarity. And so in one sense, we are one blood that joins us physically, but also ethically we're under the one federal head of Adam. All of humanity is in Adam. And what he undergoes, we all undergo. And so we don't consist of an aggregate bunch of individuals who have sort of come together by chance or any other thing, and then we, 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 we in a certain time, in a certain place, and here we are, and, and, and we're just supposed to make the best of it. We either do better or worse. He does not see it that way. He says this one great body, and, and I think of one guy once, uh, you know, we often think of the body of Christ. Um, uh, I've heard some theologians speak in one place where Paul talks about the body of the flesh, talking about maybe that's all of humanity. All of humanity is in a body of sinful flesh. But in that sense, we are different. And, and so sin and death comes to all men. And so now I want to read a few scriptures that we're going to look at, and then, uh, then we'll finish up this section. And we're going to read from, uh, right now, Romans chapter 5. 
Okay, I think we're going to have them. Are we going to have them up top somewhere? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, so I'm going to have to kind of turn with those, right? We're going to do those. Okay, so let's do, oh, verses uh, 12 through 14. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is the, 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 the trick he does it because, and, 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 and obviously the, the theologians and the Bible scholars make that point, the sinning he's talking about is through the one sin. In the one sin, all sinned and all died. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted there where there is no law. Meaning it didn't have the law of Moses there, so there was a different kind of accounting of it. Nonetheless, yet death still existed. It reigned from Adam to Moses when the law was given, even over those who were not, were, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That's a unique transgression that touched everything, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so he's going to build this whole argument of what comes afterwards because he's a type of one who's coming that some way he's going to do something that's going to be a righteousness that it's going to be different than all the other righteousness. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 22 also says, For as by, man, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, and so Paul, he, Paul in Corinthians says, just says it very cleanly there. The point is, it's not that in Adam everyone became mortal but that they had already in him received the death penalty. Every one of us received the death penalty that Adam received in his sin. We're all cast out of the garden together. Um, and then it just manifests itself through history as it rolls on. Um, the sentence was pronounced, and likewise all sinned in him then, not necessarily later. And then that, thus we come up with the, the doctrine of original sin, and, and some think original sins meant Adam's sin, but it's not really Adam's sin. It's the effect of Adam's sin. And and, and that was honest. He says, look, there's a mystery here. Some people see two aspects. Some see three aspects of it. Um, we don't understand how the connection works in this organic whole that we are. But he says we see it nonetheless. And the three things he says that are part of original sin are guilt. Okay? Not just victims, but we're guilt. Pollution meaning morally we're all messed up and, and can't do anything good in God's eyes, not as bad as we could be by his grace, but we cannot do anything spiritually to our benefit, and death, the judgment, condemnation. Guilt, pollution, death. Um, he says only two people have, he, he makes the point that all over the world, all through history, we understand how people can represent other people and, and the ramifications of what they do affects many. But only two people have had this kind of influence over all humanity. One is Adam, and then one is Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and then the last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. Um, and it's interesting, both in their creation, the fundamental differences that are going to be between them, and the first one, the first one becomes a living being and then dies. But this, the, the next one that comes along, his whole mission is to become a life-giving spirit. And of course, the, that harkens all the way back to Genesis, where the spirit is used in bringing forth life. And so uh, that is the, the mission of Christ. Um, one is the head of the old mankind, and, and, and a head of original sin and death and condemnation. The other is the head of a new humanity. Let's do uh, Romans 5, Weston, verses 15 to 19. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses um, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and he keeps using these kinds of words, much more or greater than will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Oh, there's more. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, and this is summing up the life of Christ as one act of righteousness, um, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. All that's in Romans 5, so if you want to just at your own time take something and look it out and read that yourself. And he makes this point, this is a quote for him, sin is, root, is at its root an unholy fountain from which sin continually wells up, a force which is always impelling the heart of man in the wrong direction away from God and communion with him towards corruption and decay. Um, and he says, in the end, it's just out of the, the, the heart, the sin. It just, it, it's not passive. You're now polluted. It is actively in a hatred towards God and everything that God stands for. And so we got Mark chapter 7, 23, where he says, um, or I'm sorry, yeah, is it Mark uh, 7? No, hold that off for one second, son. Let me see, is that, is that right now? Yeah, 20 through 23. I'm sorry, you did good. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Um, for whatever else the, the, the external things were of the law, they weren't to ultimately they, they weren't to reflect what true, the true problem with sin is. It's what's within him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come the evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and that's what defiles the person. Um, all sins come out from sin. When we often, we often hear the word uh, in, in, in Romans 3.23, or 6.23, uh, the wages of sin is death. We often like to think the wages of our sins is death, but that's not really what he's saying. The wages of this thing, this sinful nature, this thing that's in a sense, uh, it's alive and it's death, that actively uh, wants to destroy us and, and, and is opposed to God, that, um, uh, that, is, uh, that sin is what is death. Um, he does also want to make, he makes the point, he didn't spend a lot of time on it, but the origin, the development of sin is very closely associated with Satan. Because in both acts, both Satan's desire and his desire of sin, of sin is a hatred and a war against God. And then finally, he makes the point, the, son, the punishment for sin is death. Um, as he says, it was uh, declared definitely uh, that man is always appointed once to die, and then comes judgment. He makes the point, death is separation. First from God, then from creation, and, and, and very quickly we live in terms of shame, fear, and guilt, even in this life. Um, and, and, and sin is at the root of all that. Uh, he makes the point that for all of us, um, death begins as soon as life begins. He says from cradle to grave is a process of dying. And we live it all, that we live that death for whatever years we're given, and then we find, we find the final physical separation. 
Um, he says, even earth has to struggle with that reality. And I think our last text is going to be from Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits for the eager longing of the revealing of the sons of God, us, in our final glory. For the creation was subject to futility or vanity, meaninglessness. Not willingly, but, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so he finally ends up, he says, look, this existence that we have here, it's, he, he was pointing between heaven and hell, that's the way he liked to do it. It's not what it should be, but it's not as bad as it could be. Um, in both cases, it will change one day and be transformed. He does ends with the idea death is unnatural, but it is appointed. And then he ends this chapter with, who can stand in the day of judgment? So, <clears throat> I don't know about y'all, this was actually my favorite chapter. I'm doing the Covenant of Grace, uh, and... I think was really unique about it was the way that he, there was so much of what isn't is hard to describe in reformed theology in it right you walk work through election you work through judgment um and love how that how those two go hand in hand um he works the covenant redemption like there's a lot there that um is is not the easiest stuff to always grasp but I thought he he did such a beautiful job of putting it together where it made just made, just made so much sense how how it all went together to make the covenant of grace um, and so uh, I, I, there's, it, it was a fascinating chapter for me, so I'm excited to be able to talk a little bit about it. Um, you know, he begins the chapter, uh, interestingly enough, and he begins talking about love. And he starts kind of defining love. And he comes to this point where he says, you can't have love unless you have justice. Right? And, and that's not something that our culture really likes to hear. Right? Like, like we live in a culture where you can't tell people, you know, difficult things to hear because that's not loving. Right, and so, so bobbing very quickly is like, no, love, biblical love, holy love, he calls it, it has an element of justice to it. And you have to begin with, you have to understand that or you don't understand the covenant of grace. Um, and he says that's because we are, because God has a quarrel with his creatures. And so in order to love us, he also has a side of justice that, that goes hand in hand as he deals with this quarrel that he has with his creatures because of sin uh, and the the history of the whole world, in light of that, is ultimately seeing God's judgment in one way or another. And this means that man needs redemption. So man tries to find this redemption, and he says, through, through um, the progress of civilization, right? So, so we, we fulfill ourselves more, we, we learn more things, we grow, but it still doesn't satisfy the deepest need for rescue that man has. And because of that, redemption can only be found in religion, and as such, uh, redemption is found somewhere in every religion. Every religion has some way that they deal with redemption. It's because he says God continually arouses the need to be saved in the hearts of man. So man knows they need redemption. Man knows that the progress of civilization isn't the way you're going to get redemption. So we have religion. And we're constantly striving to find out how we do that. He says in Romans 1.18... Um, did. Um, <clears throat> he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? So there's this, there's this thing in our heart, this thing in our souls that we know there is a godliness. We know we need redemption, yet our unrighteousness, we suppress this truth. We don't want this truth, and therefore we go after other gods, other um, religions, and we find other ways to try to, to deal with that. Um, and uh, Bobbink says, and this is a great line on the bottom of 245, he says, every religion raises some ethical ideal aloft and proclaims a moral law according to which a person in his personal, domestic, civic, and social life must conduct himself. So whether you worship Buddha or Brahma or Allah or social justice or yourself, you have some ethical ideal that you put up because obeying this ethical ideal, falling on this ethical ideal, ultimately is the way that you are relieving yourself of the guilt that you know you have. There's only one way that guilt is relieved, only one way that we find redemption, and that is in Christ. That is in God. Yeah, I think ultimately this is, this is part of why um, you're going to see if you, you, you track churches and you see the, the decline in churches across the, across the spectrum. I think Barna had a study where conservative churches are tending to kind of hold, losing some, and your more liberal churches are losing very quickly their membership. Yeah, I, I think if you don't take sin seriously, you don't take need for repentance seriously. And so what happens a lot is um, it, we begin to see, and I think in some of these churches, uh, we begin to turn certain things that are sinful, we decide they are not sinful, and then we have this guilt, and we find other ways to deal with the guilt. Bobbin goes on, he, he goes on to explain the uniqueness of Orthodox Christianity. He sums it up here in the bottom of 247. Um, did I get that one? I don't have it. He says, immediately after the fall, God already has come to man. And so what you see in redemption, you see this idea of this love and justice, but you see in redemption is, unlike every other religion, where man finds his ways to, 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 to come to God himself, the fall happens and God comes to man. God is searching for man, right? He comes down looking for Adam. Every other religion, you go looking for God. In Christianity, God comes and finds you. Bobbing explains that the source of this uniqueness is what he calls the council of redemption. This is a fascinating, um, there's a, it may also be known as the covenant of redemption. And it's, it's kind of interesting, back, you know, a few hundred years ago, this was a very common way to understand uh, how the covenants worked. It, it may not be talked about as much now. Um, we have our two big ones, covenant of grace and the covenant of works, right? But the, the council of redemption or, or the covenant of redemption is something that happens before. Uh, it's defined like this. It says, it's a pre-temporal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to plan and carry out the redemption of the elect. So a pre-temporal agreement. So before time, there's been agreement an agreement between the people of the Trinity, persons of the Trinity, that they will carry out the redemption of the elect. And Bob Inc., he identifies three aspects of this council. The first is election. The second is the achievement of salvation for God's elect. And the third is the working out and the application of that salvation wrought by Christ. So three aspects of this council of redemption that happened before time. Election salvation for God's elect, and the working out and application of that salvation through Christ. And what this means is that the work of redemption from beginning to end is the sole work of God. It is sola gratia. It is by grace 
alone. It is by God alone. And as soon as Adam sins, this, this counsel of redemption begins its work. God seeks out Adam in the garden. And as Bobby paints, he does, he does such a good job here. I don't know if you guys uh, picked up on this. It was, it was fascinating for me how he began to use this covenant language in the way he explains sin. And in a way, I've never heard covenant language really used, and I really, I really appreciate it. So he says, Adam is in a covenant with God. He's in the covenant of works, right? Adam's in the garden. His job is to do what? Basically whatever, just don't eat from that tree. And then Adam breaks the covenant. And by breaking the covenant, Bobbing makes the point that Adam has entered into a covenant with Satan. You see, what has happened is Adam has listened to the word of Satan and partaken, almost like a sacrament, of the fruit. So you have this, this covenant between Adam and Satan now. And when God comes down, his grace breaks up the covenant that Adam has made with Satan. And then what God does is he puts enmity between the woman and the serpent. And so for eternity, you know, instead of for all eternity, there being a covenant now between Adam and Satan, you have God come in and say, no, there's going to be enmity. I'm going to break this covenant up. And he says on 253, by an almighty deed of his gracious will, God brings the seed of the woman, which the woman had surrendered to Satan back to his own side. It's just, a, it's just it's such a beautiful picture that he kind of paints of man's sin, man's breaking covenant with God, making covenant with Satan, and then God coming back and going, no, this covenant is invalid. I'm going to put enmity between you. You will be enemies instead, and the seed is back on my side. And so it's a beautiful way to look at the covenant of grace and the redemptive process. At this point, we begin to identify the covenant of grace. But up, up till this point, we don't have that. We have the covenant of works, Right? And now the covenant of grace is in place because redemption has to begin. Man has sinned, the covenant of works has been broken, and redemption must be laid out. Before this, the way was like this through works, Adam, eternal life. Right? Now, Bobbink says there's a safer way. The order is reversed. After the fall, after the covenant of grace, eternal life comes first. And out of that life, good works produce fruit. Uh, it's the same way, you know, if you think about the Sabbath, it was work for six days, and on the seventh you rest. And in the new covenant, what do we have? You rest the first day, we have a Sabbath the first day, then your work comes after. And so what you're seeing is that just a, it's a reversal. It's just a flip. Instead of do the right things, which produces the fruit, it is God calls you, he chooses you, he gives you the covenant of grace, and out of that comes the fruit. And Bobby says, this is a safer plan for us, right? We, we can't screw this up because God, in his covenant of redemption, has elected us. He has chosen a plan for salvation. He makes it work through Christ. And this is why Bobby understands that there must be a council or a covenant of redemption because the covenant of grace either stands or falls on election. If there's no election, there's no covenant of grace because Bobby argues Anything outside of election in your faith means you've done a work to bring yourself to God. Therefore, it requires, there must be a covenant beforehand where God has already chosen you. And the covenant of grace may seem different over time. You know, we have this, this pre-flood era. We have the Mount Sinai. You have the Ten Commandments. We get the Davidic covenant. We get the New Testament. It's ultimately all part of the same covenant for this one simple reason. It's always dependent on God. 
the terms of the deal have never changed. It is always God who does the work. It's the same gospel. As Bobby says, it's the same gospel. It's the same Christ. It's the same faith, and it confers the same benefits. It is simply, I will be your God, and you will be my people. In the third chapter, it, it, it sort of takes that, um, the, 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 the covenant of grace, and then gets very specific about the mediator. And then something he repeats it, he says, as shared, redemption is not in any way a human enterprise. It, it's absolute certainty depends on these things, as, as, as he shared in the chapter on the covenant of grace that Weston shared. Um, that's all about the grace and the will and the counsel and the purpose of God. And because God is immutable, he cannot change, it cannot change. And like I said, that's the much safer way. And that was a wonderful way uh, that he put it. Um, he said there's big three issues. There's the mediator. There's the people who are to receive the benefits of the mediator. And then there's how that gets applied. And it's Christ, it's the Holy Spirit, and it's the elect. And so... Um, but he, he, he makes the, you know, and he does uh, make that point that, and again, as he shared in the, in the previous chapter, and Weston shared a little bit too, he says, um, the need for mediators is not unique to Christianity. Every religion has someone who comes along and says, this is how we get from here to there. He says, what makes Christianity so unique in this particular chapter is that um, in all those cases, these are teachers of the way. And in, in Christianity, um, the mediator himself is the content of our religion. Um, Christ is himself Christianity. And so when he comes, he's, he's coming not simply to teach the way, which he certainly does, but he, he is the way. He, it has to be done through him and through his body. And so he says, from all eternity, Christ was the only begotten, uh, beloved son of the Father. Um, he was in the beginning with God. And in a certain time in history, um, the only beloved, um, the one and only beloved became, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, he comes down from heaven. He's certainly here to preach and proclaim the gospel and to give his soul a ransom for many, which is part of that, um, that council or that uh, covenant that he made um, within the uh, covenant of redemption that Weston had talked about from before all time. His saving work doesn't begin in the incarnation. And the Bible is very careful about talking about all the kinds of things he does. All things were made through him. And as John says, apart from him, nothing was made that was made. And, and not only that, um, he is the, uh, in him all things hold together. He's the head in the beginning of every creature, I think Colossians says. He is before all things. And that's just sort of a double play on the time, but also his preeminence and who he is. Um, he is the enlightened, he is that light that enlightens every man that comes in the world. Um, when God says, let there be light, there's Christ. It's the light, and he enlightens every man that comes in the world, and then obviously enlightens him in salvation. Um, he has a unique relationship with Israel. Um, it, it is true that um, the, the word and the wisdom of God have been operative in all the world. The, the world could not hold together if God were not working through his son throughout all creation, in all times, in every nation. Um, but he was working with, a, with God's son, Israel, as a special people, his own, and he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. And that Israel has that special relationship to him where 
uh, the message of grace is, is, is found for salvation. Um, until the time of Christ, if you want to know where do I find the message of salvation, I would go to Israel. And there Christ was. And he makes the point that there's many references to the, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the covenant that's unique to Israel, and it was sent there to um, reveal God in a very special and saving way to Israel. Um, the Gentiles just simply had no promise to cling to. Um, as it says in Ephesians, they were separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, or separated from Christ. And it's an interesting, I've not always thought about the way he used it, but separated from Christ, I kind of made those two separate things. But for Paul, Christ has always been the, the angel of the Lord to Israel, according to Bavik. And so the Gentiles are separated from Israel because they're separated from Israel, they're separated from Christ. Um, that, that's where they would find him. Um, Israel had a real hope, a Messiah, and there would be a day of the Lord in which all things would be reconciled. Um, he, was a, he was the anointed, particularly anointed son of, uh, son of David. We think of the anointing and the oil and the priest and the prophet. Um, but eventually the, the kings be, began to be called the anointed of the Lord. It says that in Psalms 2.2. 2. Um, God chooses and equips the kings for service. Um, and not just with the token oil, they, they, that could be there, but, but there, uh, Christ was the one that was um, anointed without limit um, by the Holy Spirit. Um, he was certainly born in the line of David, but of course he's more than a son of David or a son of man. He sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. He is David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, that whole thing, uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, this anointed king is to judge the nations and to redeem Israel. Um, he is both, as we see played out in Israel in the prophets, um, he is in, um, born in humble circumstances. He suffers terribly, but he's destined for exaltation. And this is going to come back again and again. The suffering service servant is going to be exalted with a name above every name. Um, he's, the, he's a messiah who totally smashes and conquers his enemies and punishes the wicked, but he also in right, brings righteousness and peace and joy to his people. He's a judge, he's a redeemer, he, he experiences Gethsemane, he experiences resurrection. Um, he has the power to forgive sins, we know that, and, and uh, one of the things he made, because this so often sort of gets in here, that he's, he was fully self-aware from the very beginning. This part of the mystery, which I think we get into starting that next month, when we start talking about the humanity and the deity of Christ and how they come together in one person. Um, but the idea that how he did grow and develop as a human, it said he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with among men and, 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 and with God, but that he was always self-aware of his calling. He didn't suddenly dawn on him someday, hey, I'm the Messiah or something like that. Um, he, he, had this, he knew that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and very early on, he was going about his father's business when they said, where did you, where did you think I'd be? I'm doing my father's business. Um, but uh, two, two uh, particular titles that I want to end with that, that, they, that, he, uh, that we refer to him. The first is the Son of Man. Um, that comes from Daniel chapter 7. So let's look at that, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And again, a well-known, this, this is one of those, uh, this along with Psalm 2 are those, those texts you really want to know well, this part in Genesis 7, um, because they come, they always are coming up again in the New Testament. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, and at this point, God, the Ancient of Days, has come and set up a court. And then he says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the, up to the Ancient of Days, 
He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man was his... I remember in seminary, this is one of the first things I learned in my, my gospel classes. It was sort of Jesus' favorite designation for himself. And, and people debate why that is. And, and, and Bob gives some of his answers. Um, he said it, 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 it provided a certain ambiguity. At that time, people weren't real sure who the Son of Man was. If you go further in Daniel, you find out that Son of Man that ascends and gets the kingdom is actually um, a personification of the whole nation of Israel, the children of Israel. And so they are the people of God. And of course, we move ourselves through the New Testament. We see how this Jesus is not only God's son, but he is the true humanity and he is the true Israel. Um, but anyway, something is a certain ambiguity. They weren't quite sure when you talked about the Son of Man. There's a, there, there were, it didn't quite carry some of the um, dynamic that uh, it was easier to keep some things in a sense I don't know the word secret, but a little lower, um, the, the, keeping the temperature uh, toned down just a little bit until he was very ready to say, now's the time to go, now's the time to die. Um, and so often Jesus would talk about different things, and he's, he would do miracles and say certain things, and he'd tell people, tell no one until... Even after, um, you know, Peter, uh, you know, says, who are you? And Peter, um, you know, says, you're the Messiah and all those wonderful things, um, the Son of God. And, but then he doesn't understand what must happen. Jesus then has to explain to him how the Son of Man has to go and suffer and be persecuted and die and rise in the, day, in the third day. And, and then after that, he says, now, don't be telling everybody until this stuff happens. Okay, we sort of keep, to keep the lid on things. Um, so it allowed him to sort of redefine the idea of this conqueror in terms of his own ministry. And so usually when you see that phrase, son of man, used, being used in the Gospels, it's all about his poverty, his suffering, and his humiliation. The son of man has come to give his life as ransom for many. Or it's about his might, his majesty, and exaltation. He tells the, the, the priest when he's before his trial, you are going to see the son of man coming on glory in the clouds with the angels. And so, but if these are so, so far apart, we've tamed it all in our heads. But according to Bob, it was very difficult for at that time, and it probably would have been for us at that time to put these together. The other is the Son of God. Um, uh, far less used by himself, though he does mention it a few times, but a lot of other people uh, have used that. And it's very closely associated with the Son of David, who is sort of the Son of God. Um, and you see it other places, but he seems very conscious about it. Um, it's the idea that the king is anointed by God. And so you'll see, it's interesting, the demons will say something, Oh, son of God, what do you have to do with us? Um, the centurion, I think at the end of Matthew, says, Oh, this, after he sees Jesus die, he says, Surely this must be the son of God. And clearly, I don't know what the centurion thought, but we're supposed to hear that echo as, Here's this Gentile killing Jesus who knows more what's going on here than the, uh, than, than the priest. Um, but, of course, the disciples and the believers in Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, Romans uh, chapter 1, Paul is writing. He says, Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, and he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
And then in Matthew 16, 16, again, I mentioned it before, when, when Peter makes the great confession, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so all of these are the, the names that he would take. He was declared that in his baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And in the transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. This idea of the son means that he is in some supreme position. And he is, was, it was common to call God his father. We say our father who are in heaven. That's not his thing. He would say my father. He would speak very uh, uniquely about that. And finally, um, he, he, it also said that um, his sonship um, was ultimately the basis of his mission. And he didn't spend a lot of time with that, but he does say that you cannot separate the mission to come and preach and save the world and die for the, the uh, ransom for many um, from his, the idea of being the son of God. And that's uh, Psalm 2, 7, and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You're my son Everything belongs to you. That was even the temptation in the garden. If you're the son of God, do this, do this, do this. I'll give you the nations. And of course, Jesus had, was going to get all those, um, and he had his own way to do it. Well, amen. Okay, um, so now we're going to go to some of the discussion points and questions. Um, if the guys will come up here, Chaz is going to be with us, and I, I believe Gavin, uh, you're going to be our sort of our guy here. Make everybody very jealous. <laughs> All right. So the first question I have is, when is Christ begotten? Was it at his birth or was it at a, some other point? He always was. Some other point. <laughs> he always was. We, to understand eternity is outside our finite mind, but he always was, so that's oh. the answer to that. Yeah, I, th I, I think that, that you have the, uh, my understanding has always been, if you've been in an eternal relationship, and, uh, you know, um, you know, C.S. Lewis is always good for illustrations and, and, and uh, to our, um, sort of articulate some things. He says, you know, you can think of a book, you say, oh, the book's been sitting there forever. Uh, supposing you have two books, one on top of another. One holds the other, the other rests on that one. That's been there forever. So the begotten nature of the Son and the Father is an eternal relationship. Um, it is also, it's, it's interesting how that works. It out, some people have wondered, how does that work in the birth, which it doesn't work as well, but I think, uh, I think I'm not sure if Peter or Paul makes mention at some point also um, that he, it's, it, he, in the resurrection of Jesus, um, he uses that quote that we just saw up there in Psalm 2 as a fulfillment of that quote. And in some sense, the resurrection becomes a human 
um, or, or historical manifestation of the reality of, just like Jesus has always been Lord, but he works out lordship in history and redemption that maybe uh, that's also seen in the, re in the resurrection. Um. All right. I've got two here that are very similar, so I'm, I think I want to just do both of them, and maybe I'll cover them both at the same time. So the first one is, will the covenant of grace apply to the Jews, Israel, at, at the judgment? And then the other question uh, was, Bavik said something about God's special relationship with Israel. Is this still in place, and should we understand that to be the modern nation of Israel? that make sense? So the covenant of grace is, is for all of God's elect, but I, I think you see in the Old Testament Israel, people who are of Israel who are not faithful people of God, right? And so I think there's, you see Israelites who don't get the promised inheritance, and you see people who are not Israelites who get grafted in in the Old Testament just as much as, you know, with, with Abraham and his descendants, he has lots of people who are not you know, family members, he's basically a cousin. He, he's going to be my inheritance, you know. <laughs> Give to that guy if I don't have a son. And so um, I, the, the, I guess in one sense the answer is the covenant of grace is, is for God's elect. And, and Bobbick does at one point go into that and say you can kind of try to differentiate that yourself. Like you can, you can look at people who, who are faithful in their churches and claim Christ and say, yeah, they fall under the covenant of grace, but ultimately God is the only one who knows those people truly do, right? If, they're, if they've been called in um, as, um, if they've been called according to his purpose, like to be his people. So um, so in one sense, it's the elect. Um, you know, the, the, the Israel issue is, there's a large spread of people who have different views on that. Um, you know, to me, the church is the church through all of time. Israel was a church. This is the church is now. It's all one people of God. And I think God's elect are always the people who are his church. And I don't necessarily think that means an, an ethnic group of people. Um, but you have, you know, like, uh, there's a Donald, Donald Barnhouse where it's a commentary. And he, his view is that in the end, Israel will turn back when Christ comes. And all of Israel will realize what's going on. And there will be that. I, I think that might be more of a minority view in the reform circle. But um, is he, is he saying the nation does, or Jew, a lot of the revival among ethnic Jews? That, that seems a little bit yeah, I, I think he, I think he, the revival among ethnic Jews, I remember correctly, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 within, within our tradition, though, I have to be honest, I'm trying to remember if, um, uh, did my eyes catch it when we were kind of keep going through that part? Um, but, uh, so I'm not sure what Bob would say, but I suspect he's a more traditional view on this. Um, and and that, that is that Israel, like the temple and, and like the, um, the ceremonial law and the Sabbath and all these things get um, superseded. And, and Abraham goes from becoming uh, the father of the Jews to the inheritor of the world, the heir of the world, is what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 4. Um, but there, there, there's different varieties of beliefs in, in that, even within form circles, um, you'll have a little bit of variety in that. Also, you know, also we have to remember, as uh, Israel was going through its time, uh, Jeremiah and Hosea and Isaiah also, they, uh, Israel was unfaithful. In fact, Jeremiah and uh, Hosea 
call them whores and their whoredom and language like this to the point where God declares a divorce of the law. Not a, there's five covenants. There's five covenants. Uh, but the one he calls a divorce on is the, the law of uh, the law from Moses because they have broken that covenant and they have gone after other gods. And so in this, he's sort of at this time saying, I'm not even going to hear your prayers. He is, he is irate with Israel. And then in Jeremiah, you hear all this talk, but then in Jeremiah you get to uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 where he talks about the new covenant. It's going to be written on the heart and in the in the mind and on the heart. And it's a different way of looking at the covenants that, that are coming that's going to come along, which of course that covenant is Christ. But God is very aggravated with Israel for what they've done. I mean, language, you're cheaters is basically what we what he would be calling Israel. And they had they had taken on the desire to worship other gods, and even when he Asked them to repent. They they spit on like Jeremiah. They mocked Jeremiah and made him, you know, and was just tearing him apart. So I mean, so God was aggravated, very much so with Isaiah. I mean, with uh, Israel, and that's where we get uh, when we come to the new covenant where Christ is. It's a different type of covenant. You know, the other covenants build on one another, but this one is different. In, in that, I'm sorry. Did you I, say, I, I can't remember who said it, but they said, what makes David different than, you know, Solomon, Saul, or whatever. David was a murderer and adulterer, all that. And they said, David was a one God man, right? Like David's allegiance, he was never an idolater. You never see David worshiping other gods, doing other things. David was always Yahweh's man. Um, and Saul and all these people, they do, they do things with other gods. And there's this, this whoredom they wanted to see kind of going on. It's David unique. Right. So in that same vein... How are God's people in the New Testament saved? Is it different than those in the Old Testament? Is there a different salvation? Or is it the same? Yeah, I think that certainly those in the form consistent. I think evangelicalism too, it's, it's the same. Man of the Lord is saved by faith, never by the works. Um, in the Old Testament, they lived in terms of the promises and prophecies, faithful to the covenant as God had unveiled it to them. But all men, I think that's the heart of Hebrews 11. All those Old Testament people were saved by their faith. That's really cool. Yeah. So, what did God accomplish by the flood if it didn't purge the sin uh, from creation? What was, what was the point? The point of the flood, I mean, Noah's covenant is to go back, be fruitful, multiply again. He just wanted God just wiped out all all humanity. <laughs> you got to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that was the same that was the same thing he told Adam. That was sort of the covenant of Adam to subdue uh, creation and be fruitful and multiply. And the, that and then that even worked into with Jacob, where he even tells Jacob be fruitful and multiply. So that was sort of the the job. That's one of the reasons why. And the line of Shem was where the seed of the woman keeps going, where Seth was in, was from Adam, and then Shem was from uh, Noah. Yeah, 
I said, I think there's something to that, you know, the, the, the beauty, I was, who I was talking about, is the beauty of um, how God kind of unrolls and rails up his law is it's, it's not all at once. Um, and so you see, you know, with Adam, it's don't eat the tree, right? And you, you have, you know, as you get to the Ten Commandments, you know, you get to um, more, as you get to the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, it's not just your outward actions, just your inward actions. You know, almost like we would with like our kids, we, as they're little, you may not, hey, don't do that right now. As they get a little older, you tell them, you kind of add to the ha- why we don't do certain things and all that. He, it's very much a childlike way that he kind of raises up his people. Um, you know, in the same way you have Noah, God wipes everything out, and you kind of see this new covenant come in, um, or new that kind of falls in the covenant of grace, and he begins to protect all of life, right? So he says, if, you know, if a man sheds of a man, then his blood is shed by man. Like, you begin to see some more structure put in place for the, the preservation of man. You know, because before that, these things aren't laid out in the law, God's law. So then it comes, he floods the earth, starts over, and begins to kind of lay out more of like, how do I preserve mankind so my act of redemption can come? It's by laying some of these things in order um, so that man is, is preserved and protected um, for redemption purposes to that. I think in a number of places, I think Paul makes the point, but um, the things in the Old Testament were for our benefits. It's, it's hard for us to get the perspective of the difference between what the new covenant and the old covenant, the new creation, the old creation is. Um, you know, there's, there's a certain, and, and if you want to have uh, an example of what the terribleness of sin and the hopeless nature man has in it, we on our side of the resurrection get to look back at the flood and see is what do you do if you wipe everybody out except the best man in the world? What's it going to look like in a few years? It's going to look like the Tower of Babel. Um, and, I, and I think that becomes, and so part of it, uh, just like the children coming under the flood, uh, I mean, coming through the, uh, you know, the, the Red Sea and the wilderness, they're all, all that is examples for uh, God's, for us to appreciate more what who Christ is and how we ought to be faithful to him. Oh, thank you. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, you've got to raise your hand there. Um, feel free to. But also, it was all to continue the kingdom of God, because he wanted the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so this was his ultimate plan. Adam blew that. And humanity helped blow it even more, but uh, but still keep humanity going, because that was his ultimate plan. Uh, can you speak more to the term mediator of the covenant? What is the nature of a mediator? intercedes for his people. I mean, you think, you know, um, Abraham does it for Lot, right? You see Moses do it for the people. You, you see this pattern of people who go, nope, take my life instead um, for their people. And ultimately, the, the mediator is someone who intercedes on behalf of the people. And, and all those people do it imperfectly. Uh, and Jesus does it perfectly. And um, yeah, I think in both your chapter and my chapter, he makes the point that it's almost a common grace thing. And, and again, you want to say it's Lewis. Lewis says everybody knows two things. There's something we ought to do, and we can't do it. And he says those two things, every religion deals with. We, we, we all know there's something we shouldn't break, and we all break it together. And then from that point on, it all goes in its various directions. And I'm guessing that in the end, maybe that's it. It's almost a common knowledge. We look at each other and we go, oh, something else has to fix, come between us 
and that for whatever you want to call salvation, heaven, or whatever. So that would be my best guess. And in Christ, he becomes the perfect, that perfect thing that everybody needs and that Israel in every way lives out for its 2,000 years with that mediator. So he intercedes in our prayers when we don't know what to pray. He intercedes. He's the advocate uh, between us and God. Uh, or as uh, 1 Timothy says, he's the mediator. He's the one that comes in there, and, it is, and I think it's uh, Hebrews 9.15 where he talks about he is the mediator of the new covenant. And so he, he's just the one that allows us to have eternal life. He is the, the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but me. And I think, again, next month, the two of the three chapters deal with, one deals with the human nature, and the, as, I look, as I look at it, it's the Christ in his exaltation and for us in humiliation. And that's where you're, you're going to get the mediator for sin and then justification. Cool. One more? All right. Let me pick a good, good point. Bobbick mentioned on page 247 that redemption is the same as recreation. What does he mean by that? I mean, the process of redemption is making his people new. And, and you know, when you, when you see the destruction and judgment that God brings, the flood, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's their decreation events. So he's, he's decreating what he had created. Um, and, and with his people, it's a, it's a, it's we are new, new creatures. We're a new creation in Christ. And so um, redemption can almost be interchanged with new creation uh, in, in most, I guess, any situation you would you'd want to see it. Puts us in the same situation as Adam. Basically, Adam was born sinless, and so our sins have been cast away. Well, you know, from the, as far as the east is from the west. So what it does is the recreation allows us to one day be in that perfect paradise that if we hear about in Revelation 20, 21, 22, that we'll be with the Father forever. That, that's the recreation allows us to be in the new creation. Does that make sense? It's safer. <laughs> I really appreciated that part. I was like, it's safer. And like remember, it. our end game is not simply to escape here and go to heaven. The end game is resurrection of all things, um, which is recreation. Okay. Well, amen. Amen. Is there any more, any more questions? Any questions about Anybody? this? Anybody? 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 I do because I just skipped those words. <laughs> Fudge over. Yeah. It, it, look, it's slow reading, guys. And, and, and some of it, you'll, you'll start reading some of it. Stuff you'll already know. You know Jesus is, the, and then he just gives lots of scripture for two big, long paragraphs. And you, you know, that just becomes a, a Bible study if you want to do that. And then he gets into some things that are actually, oh, I've not thought about that or heard that. And so it's, it's not easy. And sometimes I'll read through some things pretty quick. And then I'll get something that goes, oh, I have not thought that way. And I've had to kind of really work through it. But you're right. It, it, it's, it's not, uh, and as these things often go, it's probably easier than some, but uh, it's just there. Mm -hmm. Are we good? Well, let's go ahead and say a word of prayer, and we will go about our business. Uh, Father, we thank you so much um, for your love for us. We, we, we look up here, we see our, um, 
how far we are in our sin and, and, and the curse of death, and yet Christ, our mediator, comes in as a champion of the covenant of grace. And each and every way, he pleads the case. Um, he um, becomes sin on our behalf. Um, Father, he is, uh, he, we are crucified with him. We are raised with him. And all these things, we are for all eternity with him. Even as Adam has brought us all low, Christ has more than that saved us. And we do thank him for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I find that one like easiest to read my eyes on this one. 